Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My special guest in this episode is the Scottish actor Mark Bonner, who's well known to television viewers for his roles as Ashley Jensen's husband, Chris, in Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney's brilliant Catastrophe, Max in Guilt, Duncan Hunter in Shetland, and for major roles in Line of Duty, for which he was nominated for a BAFTA Scotland Award, the police drama Unforgotten with Sanjeev Bhaskar and Nicola Walker, for which he won the BAFTA Scotland Best Actor Award in 2017. He was also also in Psychoville, Taggart, Doctor Who, 2012, Silent Witness, Grantchester, Vera, Jekyll and Hyde, Undercover, Porridge as Officer Meeky, alongside one of the early guests on my time capsule, the brilliant Kevin Bishop. He was in Eric, Ernie and Me, in which he played Eric Morecambe. Humans, with another My Time Capsule guest, Tom Goodman-Hill, Quiz, and the films The Kid Who Would Be King and Say My Name, to name but a few. He is the voice of several characters in video games like Assassin's Creed and Battlefield 1, and he voices Twigs and Box in the CBB series Tree Foo Tom. In 2022, Mark appeared on Celebrity Catchphrase and raised £17,000 for Action for M.E., so there you are, a wonderful and very full career. But what are the things that Mark would choose to preserve in his time capsule? Let's find out, shall we? This is my conversation with Mark, recorded from my study at home and Mark's hotel room in Malta, lucky devil, where he was filming, but also confined, having tested positive for COVID the day before. It turned out that he didn't have COVID, but it meant that I was able to talk to him. So, having set the scene... Here is Mark Bonner. 
How are you feeling? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm fine. I'm yeah. kind of um, I'm bored, and I want to <laughs> I want to leave this fucking room. But um... <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, Jesus Christ, you're in Malta. The weather's gorgeous, I should imagine. It's not bad. And seafront down on the harbour. Are you near there? Um, I'm. I'm right. Uh, hang on. I'll swing this around and show you. I'm. I'm over. Oh, basically don't. overlooking. Oh my god. I've got a balcony, which is nice. You know, I've been out on it. But uh, I just want to go for a walk or go for a cycle or work. Oh, that's a bugger. So what are they saying? Well, I just had a test at about um, an hour and a quarter ago. I think I'll get the results by sort of uh, two-ish. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't due in today anyway, but and then I'm free to, I don't know if they'll haul me in at some point to catch up. How long are you there for? Three weeks. Oh, how awful. I'm really feel <laughs> for <laughs> yeah, I know. It's. I mean, I've got two young kids. So I've got a ten and a seven year old. So it's kind of. Uh, um, it's a. It's a mixed. Ble- it, I see. It's a mixed pleasure. It's, it's very difficult to be away from family. Mm-hmm. But yes, I mean, it's a. It's a wonderful opportunity to see somewhere that I've never been before. You know. And- no, I've been tempted by it. I've never been there. It's a very difficult thing, isn't it? That balancing of family. Always those brilliant trips and always those great jobs are always tinged with that element of of guilt. I wish I, yeah, well, I, <laughs> yes. I wish I was putting the kids in the bath. You know, yeah, I know, yeah, be, yeah, those things. Yeah, putting them to bed, and getting them up in the morning. I love getting them up in the morning. Do you? Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I usually do that, and my wee boy's seven, and I usually wake him up by just gently tickling him. Until he laughs, and we always we have this little thing where he goes, "You got me." If I make him laugh, you know, um, uh, that's brilliant. So I kind of yeah, I, I'm I, I miss them very much, and and FaceTime's a kind of an odd thing. It's a, a double edged sword, I think, because you sort of think, "Oh wow, I can see them," and mm. but they don't, especially the younger one. He he's not really he doesn't really enjoy it. I think they don't they don't like it when they're young, you know. No. We're okay because we can kind of cope with the artifice, I think, a bit better, but it's trickier when you're younger. I've got grandkids, so... Uh, well, you've been married for 41 years. I've been married for 14 years, so you just swap the one and the four around. Ah, but look at your beautiful wife. <laughs> I know, well, I know. I do every day, <laughs> punching above my weight, yes. <laughs> but look at your beautiful Brilliant. wife, for heaven's sake. She is beautiful. <laughs> I am very lucky, I know, yeah. Well, we're lucky men. We are. So yes, I'm missing that. I'm missing that a great deal. And I would imagine by the, I mean, I'm only looking here two days. I would imagine by the, the end of the three weeks, I'm going to be crippled with it. But it's nice to be. It's nice to be working. I want to go and hire a bike actually because I've never been here, as I said. And and it's such a historical island. You know, there's so mm. much to see. I mean, cycling would be a really good way. I don't want to hire a car and sort of contribute to that kind of dust and pollution that's around. But I think cycling would be quite good, you know. It's quite hilly, isn't it? It's very hilly. I'm g- okay. I'll get out just out of town and I'll come back. <laughs> Jesus oh, Christ. What about an electric bike? Uh, I could do, I suppose, yeah. I'd quite like to hire something for the three weeks I'm here. So an electric bike might be um, prohibitive in, uh, in its price. Uh, oh, right. Are you working for the BBC? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm working for Apple, actually. Uh, brilliant. All right, Mark, so do you sort of know the way this works? Yes, yeah, I do. Yeah, I've, ah, I've managed cool. to narrow it down to 10. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do two episodes. <laughs> uh, this is incredibly hard. I found myself kind of I had a bath last night and I was I, I was kind of thinking trying to regress and go back and it, I, I listened to a few episodes because mm. I'd never listened to your podcast before and it's fantastic it's a really great idea 
Oh, bless you. Um, and um, the conversations are really lovely as well. I, I listened to a, a bit of Rufus's because I know Rufus Jones. Yeah. And immediately hated him because he chose Laurel and Hardy first. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you fucking... <laughs> I, I really... I mean, they're part of my, you know, makeup. Mm-hmm. All those kind of double acts. Tom and Jerry was another big one for me. Yeah. And the two Ronnies, Morgan and Wise. All those kind of wonderful um, double acts seemed to kind of infuse themselves into my childhood growing up. Mm. But he chose Laurel and Hardy and I just thought, all right, okay, uh, you swine, um, I'll not be doing that. And then I listened to Michael Simkins one yesterday and those wonderful tapes that he has of his family singing and and having a good time for years. What an incredible thing. Unbelievable. It it really was. And all of them playing music and that little clip that he put, I could listen to that for ages, that (laughs) wee clip that you played. He did send me one year. Oh, did he? And I listened right the way through. You couldn't stop listening. You were in the room. It's amazing. It's fascinating, isn't it? So yeah. Just to trying to capture little pieces of conversation, mm. attitudes, or, or I don't know. I don't know. It's just a, a wonderful, tangible glimpse of history, you know? Absolutely extraordinary. It reminded me that we have a, and it's just one side of a C90, but my, um, that I haven't even started yet, have I? Because um, <laughs> this is, I don't think I'm going to put this in, but listening to yours and Michael's conversation reminded me that my grandfather, who was Polish, he, um, in it must have been, uh, was it 1978 or 77, he bought a big, essentially a ghetto blaster, I suppose, but it was a, a tape recorder, but it was a, like a, it was about the size of a shoebox and it had a handle on top and there was a microphone on top and he recorded a series of conversations just over a couple of days, I think, just at, at lunch. Actually, it was longer than a couple of days. He would do it quite regularly. And I think my mum just said, could you not do that anymore? Because it, it made her really <laughs> self-conscious. But it was basically just conversations of him and my grandma and my mum and dad and me and my brother at the lunch table or the dinner table or whatever. And um, mm. they're very, very boring. Um, how where did you get these tomatoes, Millie? <laughs> oh, well, I got them and 14 pence for the pound. Oh, right, yes. Um, it's all that kind of stuff, you know. The thing that um, really struck a chord with what Michael was saying as well was that hearing people's voices, because his mum and dad are obviously long gone. My mum and dad are still around, but my grandma and granddad are long gone. Um, mm. And just hearing their voices is quite a strange experience, you know, Um especially my grandfather. His English wasn't great for his whole life, really. It was okay, but he got by and he he said, um, the things, the things, if he couldn't remember what he (laughs) had to say. But yeah, I think it's wonderful, that kind of uh, little light being shined on the past. Um, Mm. And I don't think you can actually judge it until you get a distance from it. I've got recordings of my grandson, just us going walking. I've got... I think about 10 hours of him just talking to me on walks. <laughs> and I don't know yet whether, you know, but the moment I listen to it, I go, yeah, that's him. But I think eventually I'm going to be really glad I've done it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I suppose, the one good thing about phones. I mean, I'm recording this on my phone now, but just looking at it, there's loads of stuff that, and the kids also, they take my phone away and record <laughs> their own wee things, you know. <laughs> and sometimes that can be such a joy to suddenly go, what's that? And play it and go, oh my God, they're playing a whole game, you know. Yeah. Um, when did your granddad come over to England? Or Scotland, in fact? Scott, yeah, he, he came over during the war. He did actually come to England. I think he got a boat to Southampton. His brother, 
see the so this is a a, um, a kind of sad thing uh, or a lamentable thing. The story of this is kind of lost with his death, um, but his brother was in a concentration camp, I think, mm. and he decided, along with his best friend, I guess at the time, to leave before things got any worse. And uh, as far as I know, he walked from Warsaw to uh, Yugoslavia, which ain't no mean feat, as we know, no. and then got a boat from Yugoslavia to Southampton, I think, and, and somehow worked his way up to Edinburgh and met my grandma, who was a, who was a nurse at the time. Mm. But yes, I don't, I mean, it's a fast, I, you know, at, at some point I'd like to try and find out a little bit more or find out if, I know we've got family in Canada, Um because the name, my name isn't Bonner. My name is Bednarski. He changed his name from Bednarski to Bonner. I think in an effort to stop my dad getting bullied at school or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. My wife's parents came from Poland. Oh, did they? Earlier than that, though, I think as part of the pogroms. Oh yeah, yeah. So the Fenton in my name is Finkelstein. Oh wow! Mm. I should have taken the theatrical name Michael Finkelstein. It'd be Finkelstein. Much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> it's a fantastic name. I did briefly dalliance with the, because um, my first name's Richard, and I thought Richard Bednarski would be a really good stage name when I was yeah. leaving there. But I just thought people are going to be, you know, it'll just be in meetings. Uh, this is Richard Bednarski. No, call someone else. Call someone else. Call that Fenton Stevens bloke. He's good. <laughs> I know. Um, I toyed with the idea of calling myself Watlington P. Risborough. <laughs> don't, no, don't. It's a signpost on the M40. <laughs> God, when you're young, it, and it seems such a good laugh. And uh, <laughs> thank God I didn't do that. I know. Stuck with it for life. How do you Watlington P. Risborough. Watlington. There's a place called Watlington, a village. And P is Princess Risborough. Oh, Princess Risborough, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I kept saying to people, "What do you think of the name Watlington P. Risborough? It's a good actor's name, isn't it?" People saying, "Fuck off! Don't be ridiculous." You ain't off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Oh my god! Right, okay. So, but anyway, so yes, yeah, so I lamented the loss of Laurel and Hardy to Rufus Jones, but they are what they are. I probably would put them, sneak them into one of the other time capsules um, because they never fail to. Make me smile, mm. basically. But uh, I'm presuming in in the great tradition of Desert Island Discs that all your family and friends are already in one time capsule, <laughs> like you get like you get the complete works of Shakespeare and and the Bible. <laughs> I'm presuming that your all your family and friends are already because I ha- you know I'd want them. I'd like to pick things, but I also want everything else. I want everything else. The, the, yeah. I want a really big one for everyone yeah. I love. For your entire life to go into. Uh, yeah. Yes. And Why then not? these little things, just to make it easier to find. Okay, <laughs> okay um, if you like. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, all right. The first thing that I'm going to put into my uh, first time capsule is, um, I, I see, I toyed with the idea of putting David Attenborough in mm. because I have a lifelong love affair with him. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I should put in one of the shows instead because basically I would, you know, if I put him in, see, I've thought this all through, Mike, if I put Mm -hmm. him in, then I'd get him out whenever it is you open them. And it would just be awkward because (laughs) it's not really, it's not really him. It's what he's done. 
So I thought, right, I'm going to put in Life on Earth, the series Life on Earth, which was for me. I mean, I know he'd done a lot of things before that, but that was a kind of explosion in my brain, um, my eight-year-old brain, I think mm. it was at the time. I already loved, you know, nature, natural history programs. We used to watch The World About Us um, and Wildlife on One. Yeah. But when Life on Earth came out, it was so brilliantly made and it was just an incredible feat of program making, I think. To, yeah. I mean, I can't remember how many episodes there were. There was quite a few, though. I think it was maybe eight or something. Mm. That is an all-encompassing thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he talked about the whole thing you know, there was references to where life began mm-hmm. and where it was going and, you know, how these things evolved. And and it was just, it was mind-blowing for me at that age and sort of started a lifelong love affair with, with him, but also with the natural world, you know. Um, I am never happier than when I'm outside and I can hear birdsong. I'm a, I'm, I was a, a, a budding ornithologist when I was... Young, I belonged to the Young Ornithologists Club. <laughs> so did I. Did you? I did, yeah. <laughs> I used to love, I used to go bird watching by myself down mm. to Aberlady Beach, wherever I could go. And we used to, um, although I don't obviously condone this now, but me and my mates used to go egg collecting, mm. um, which was illegal and still is, and um, quite rightly. Yeah. But, you know, my granddad had a big egg collection, which I think my mum still has. And that he collected when he was a boy. Right. <clears throat> this is this is my mum's dad, not my dad's dad, the Polish mm-hmm. one. My mum's dad. He was an avid bird watcher as well, and he would know he would know the calls, and he was really good at spotting birds. And but but I and I I guess it kind of rubbed off on me because mum is as well, and the British book of birds has always been around in our house. But generally, natural history is is a, a massive part of my life and I'll always sit down if I'm flicking channels and there's a, a nature documentary and I'll always always watch it mm. I just love nothing more than being in it you know yes just yesterday I walked on the cliffs outside of um well Calais really about 10 miles from Calais just walked along those beautiful oh, chalk yeah, cliffs yeah. and the bird life was amazing although I think it is that thing when you're a, you're young and you learn to spot them you don't lose that skill do you because I kept saying to my no. oh look oh look you don't normally get that close to a plover. As you said, where? What? <laughs> a what? There, there, that thing. A pair of kestrels flew off a German bunker and then went down onto the field oh, wow. and the female landed. And the male came down from the sky and went straight at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? And you don't often see kestrels breeding, do you? You don't. My God. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't often see them in pairs. No. I mean, you usually see them hovering above the motorway embankment or whatever don't you yeah it was beautiful gosh well I'm, I'm always doing it with the kids as well i'm always going now that's that's a blackbird you, you can and you if you if you look up at the top they all they're always the last of the evening mm. to go down when there's the dusk chorus it's always the blackbird at this highest point doing that beautiful song there's a blackbird and robins of course are the the, the friendliest of all birds yes. you know especially when I'm digging over the compost heap or whatever, yeah. you know, though it's amazing how close they come to you. It's, it's thrilling. It right really up to your boot, yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, yeah, I've, I'm trying to pass that love on to the kids. And and, mm. and, uh, and they do. They're, they're very good at, you know, spotting and coming up and they, they try and catch. They've got 
they love butterflies. So they, they're always trying to catch butterflies and I mean, catch them, you know, they're kids, but yeah, yeah. they've got a net to catch them and stuff. So Have you ever taken them to hear the dawn chorus? Um, no, I haven't. No, um, getting them up at that time in the morning would be an absolute nightmare. But, um, <laughs> That's true. I could try. Maybe when yeah. they're a bit older. <laughs> Maybe. I do have a very fond memory of doing it, but it's a weird thing, isn't it, to wake up at sort of four o'clock in the morning? Because you sort of need to. When you were a and child, you mean? When I was a child, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't remember who took me. In fact, I don't think anybody did. What, you just went on your own? I just got up and went. Oh, wow. And walked to a nearby wood and just stood there, and it was completely silent. And then you just hear... <laughs> just this one thing, <laughs> and, you think, oh. and then it just bursts. It's amazing. Wow. Oh, that's a great idea, actually. We should do that. Well, we're just, we're mm. just about to get a camper van. So, um, oh, great. I think that uh, that'll by default be our alarm clock probably every morning. Yeah. <laughs> <gasps> In fact, you may not need to get up. You may just <laughs> leave the door yeah. open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Park near a forest. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Oh, how brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think David Attenborough and Life on Earth. For so many people, that made them aware of the world we live in. Mm. And you could have seen lots of things before, but that's a turning point because it's just extraordinary broadcasting. I think, yeah, the cinematography um, and the soundtrack, the music for it, you know, er everything and things we had never seen before. You know, the fact that he was going into the jungle to um, discover the world's largest flower, which gave off the smell of rotting flesh. And you could yes. see he's such a great communicator without being, he's not a face puller, he's not a mugger. He just, he has a wonderful kind of hold of you when he's presenting, you know, mm. um, his descriptions are fantastic and you can, you know, I, I just love him. I sat beside him in a, not beside him, I sat with my back, we were back to back at, at the um, BNP Awards, the, the the British Press Guild, uh, BPG, not BNP. Yeah, not BNP. No, What's that was BNP? British Nationalist Party. Oh no, British now. <laughs> well, they also, but it's Bank National Paris, isn't it? Because they they, yeah. they sponsor the French Open. And every time I see BNP when I'm watching tennis, I'm like, oh my god! Oh no, it's not them anymore. <laughs> Where's Macron? Yeah, well, <laughs> The BPG Awards, because he was he was up for something, and um, we were back to back. And I, I, Lucy was just my wife was just going, just say hello, go and see, because all the whole time I was just going, oh my god, it's Dave, that's Dave, I couldn't believe it. Dude. I don't have many regrets, but that's one of them is that I didn't yeah. go and say hello to him when he and he left early as well. Cause he's not, he's old and knackered, you know. But yeah, that was uh, one of the regrets in my life, not seeing hello to Dave Dan, but. When I was a boy, I was a very big fan of Gerald Durrell and read all his oh, books. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was what got me into it, I think. Yeah. The idea of that I might one day be a, a wild young boy running over the islands of Greece. I never read any of his books. I remember them being around, but I never mm. I never read them. Were they good? Well, as a boy, I loved them uh -huh. because they were about a young boy just going off and finding animals in strange places and oh, right. living this wild existence with no parental guidance at all, so... Yeah, read My Family and Other Animals. It's very funny. It's a funny book. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Lovely. All right, we should put David Attenborough and all his works. Well, not actually the man, but his work, Life on Earth. Life on Earth, yes. Into the time capsule. That's the first one. Okay. Okay, that's number one, yeah. So, number two, I'm going to put The Shining, the film The Shining. Oh, wow, yeah. I love Kubrick, as many people do, of course, but this is my favourite film of all time. But when it came out, you would have been a teenager, wouldn't you? 
younger. Well, it came out in 1980, so I was 12. Yeah. Um, I couldn't remember the first time I saw it, but I've seen it subsequently many, many times. I watched it again, and I, was, and I hadn't seen it for quite a number of years. And I was sort of thinking, oh, gosh, I wonder if it'll still be my favourite, because I always say it's my favourite film. And yeah. by God, it really is. It's an amazing piece of art, I think. And everybody in it and everybody that's making it is kind of, you know, it was like a a perfect storm of talent and technology and that mad fucking genius at the middle of it all calling the shots. And I've watched, you know, I've watched, so I've watched um, Room 237. Have you seen that documentary? No, I haven't. Oh, my, it's so good. I don't know if you like The Shining, but... I did see The Shining when it came out. I went to the cinema and saw it. Oh, okay. I'm not good with scary films. Oh, you're not. And it's bloody terrifying, isn't it? It is. Well, that's the thing about it. It's a kind of... It's. Um, I was thinking about this last night. It's not... Because um, what's wonderful about it is it starts off in a very kind of strange place anyway, but it's a kind of... It has everything... In it, it's a it's a story about. Um, I mean, it is a terrifying film, but it's also a, a story about domestic abuse, really. Mm-hmm. And it's a psychological terror uh, horror film, and um, uh, you know, it's a suspense thriller. It's a kind of chase movie. It's kind of got everything <laughs> in it, really. Yes, but this overarching supernatural feel to it. And also the kind of fact that Kubrick is constantly pulling the rug from under your feet. That documentary, Room 237, is really fascinating because they, it tells you, for example, one, it's, it's all about basic, it's all about people's theories about the film. There's lots of different theorists, conspiracy theorists and theorists who kind of zone in on that film because, you know, Kubrick was supposed to have filmed the moon landings. Mm. So one of the theories uh, or the conspiracy theories is that the whole film's like an apology to everybody <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> Oh, I see it all now. (laughs) I know, it's crackers. People start with one little, that's funny, that looks a bit shaped like a rocket. Hang on. (laughs) The whole film's in it. But there's some some captivating theories in it as well um, about genocide because the, I don't know if you remember, but the hotel's built on a Native American burial ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, And obviously Kubrick's, family i can't remember where he was from now kubrick but um you know there's parallels drawn up with the genocide of the jews obviously during Mm. the war and all these look because kubrick never does anything by mistake he has his fingers in every single fucking pie that is you know everything you see in every frame and every shot is planned Mm. And you don't think about it when you're watching a film, but then when you watch somebody talking about it afterwards in this documentary, for example, you think, oh my God. So so this whole fact that the hotel was built on um, a burial site and he has, there was cans of tomatoes. You know when Jack gets locked in the um, cold store by Wendy, she beats him over the head. She drags him to the cold store, locks him in, and there's all these cans of tomatoes. And the cans of tomatoes, they were actual cans of tomatoes at the time, but they, their emblem on the can was a Native American sort of with a feather in his oh, yeah, head yeah. or something. Yeah. I, I can't remember what they were called, a, a feather headdress on. But little things like that and things like mm-hmm. um, when he goes in first on the Monday to meet the owner of the hotel or the manager, the hotel manager, 
and has his interview for the job of caretaker, there's a window in the manager's office and somebody has worked out that the route that he follows in the film, because it's, it's all steady cam, which was another invention at the time, mm. invented for that film, uh, it follows him around and they, they've worked out that that room that he has the interview in is actually an internal room. There wouldn't be a window in that room because it's like under a staircase or something, you know, according to the plan of the hotel. Yeah. And um, so things like that, that really kind of, it's not just the images you see that are unsettling or the, or the behavior of the characters in the film that's unsettling. It's the very fabric of the geography of the hotel that's unsettling you. It's, 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 he's pushing all your buttons. I mean, that sort of detail, it works, doesn't it? Totally. I mean, I think I probably saw the film in the cinema. I'm not sure I've seen it since because it frightened me so much. And I spent the whole time in the cinema resisting shouting at the screen. (laughs) I I get that carried away. My wife won't go to the cinema with me if it's frightening. She gets embarrassed. I've always loved scary films. I've always loved being Ah. scared. I I kind of... um, BBC Two used to have a horror double bill on Friday nights, I think it was, or Saturday nights. In the late 70s, when I was, yeah, 9, 10, and I had this book, which was, I don't know where I'd got it from or who'd given it to me, but it was like horror films. I mean, maybe, maybe I got it for a birthday or something, but it had, it had like a little blurb on each page was a different film. Mm. So you had a little blurb on one page, a picture of the film, and it was films like Quatermass and The Pit or, you know, Dracula, the very first one, not Bela Lugosi, but the Christopher Lee Peter Cushing one, you know. Yeah. So that I would, I would pour over this and read it and scare myself, you know, by reading what, what <laughs> happened in the film and looking at the picture. And one of the most scary pictures was actually a film I've never seen. The picture was a guy wearing a Hessian sack and just white eyes and kind of all bedraggled oh. walking towards the... And it was like a terrifying picture. But anyway, I, I used to ask if I could stay up to watch the horror double bill and it was always a no. Because it started at 10, I no. think. And, you know, I was in bed by half, seven, eight. But one night, I, we had, we had in, the, in the house that we stayed in, we had glass above the door, little glass sort of oblongs above each door, you know. And one night when the, um, it was 10 o'clock and I crept downstairs and I got a chair from the kitchen and stood on it so <laughs> I could see what was going on on screen. I couldn't really hear very well, but I could see what was, and it was, um, I think mum or dad noticed, they must have got a fucking shock, but um, they noticed this wee face. This enormously tall child. Yes, a very tall, pale, tired (laughs) child in the glass oblong of the door. So they let, they said, all right, come on then, you can watch this one. And um, so I got to watch my very first horror film, which was The Electric Man with Lon Chaney Jr., mm. which, is a, which is a sort of Frankenstein-ish film. I think, is he a convict? I can't remember. But the bus that he's on crashes into an electricity pylon and right. he's the only survivor, but he's electrified. So he has to wear a rubber suit and he can't touch anybody because he kills them. And he falls in love. Yes, and I think there's a child as well that he uh, tries to save, or I can't remember. Anyway, it's it's basically Frankenstein. Mm. So that was that started my lifelong love of horror films, and I still to this day, if I get a chance when I'm on my own somewhere or in a hotel, you know, away from home, because Lucy doesn't like them either. Um, I'll watch 
a sort of ream of horror films that I've heard are, are good. <laughs> so I've already watched a couple here. But um, but The Shining remains head and shoulders above them all. Absolutely. But as an actor, isn't it extraordinary what Jack Nicholson can do? Because he's, without a doubt, one of the most over-the-top actors who's ever been... A, he's yes. astonishingly over-the-top in what he does. Well, he, but it absolutely works. Yes, I would argue that... I agree, I, I, and but I, and in fact, in The Shining, I think he was pushed in that particular direction by Kubrick mm. because Kubrick wanted it to be like an opera, and so the performances are unusually heightened, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. Um, but also, what's I agree what you said about Jack that he is big and he is he kind of he he's unafraid to take those kind of risks with naturalism but at the drop of a hat can i'm thinking about the scene in the bathroom with mr o'grady he can drop it right down yeah and and the moment where he's sitting typing he's just typing and then he walks away yeah there's no indication of what's going to come no indication that he's this is a madman you know why is he still typing 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 all the time and then she goes up and she looks at that page yeah but for anybody who's not seen it just skip forward 30 seconds because you know, <laughs> <laughs> all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Just yeah. over and over again. It's really frightening. It's like a stone falling down inside you that moment when you first see the film. You know, you're like, oh, my God. Mm. And she's so good in it as well. Oh. My God, she's fantastic. Yeah. And she had a horrendous time in that film, I think. Right. You know, she was, she was well... I don't know. I don't know if she was bullied, but there was all kinds of stuff going on. Strange ways of making films, isn't it? With that thing of uh, where you feel that, in fact, you want someone to feel disassociated, or, or in fact, you want someone to feel as if there's something threatening going on around them. Uh-huh. So you create that situation. Well, it, yes, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I think you know we realise now that. Well, not everybody realizes, but that's part of the job is you know is is to do is to do whatever has been asked of you in the script. You don't need to create that atmosphere offset because that has in in many ways the opposite effect mm-hmm. as in my experience, you know if somebody tries to really unsettle you, you feel unsettled and therefore unable to do your work to the best of your abilities you know I, yeah, if you're doing a play where the aim of the play every night is to really move the audience. During rehearsals and backstage, you have the best laugh, don't you? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's it's always the way, isn't it? When you're mm. trying, when you're doing a comedy, it's fucking thankless. And when you're doing a program about serial killers, you're giggling the whole way through. You yeah. know? It's, <laughs> it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah. but I be, yeah, but I believe Shelley Duval really didn't have a. It took her a long time to recover from that really? um, film. I think. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is a which is a, a blot on that particular landscape, but yeah, I wish I'd had the idea that I'm not sure who the man was, but the man who around that time passed himself off as Kubrick. Do you know that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. he got into clubs and because nobody ever yeah, nobody knew what Kubrick parties, looked like. Nobody knew what he looked like. So he would ring <laughs> up and say, "Hi, it's uh, Stanley Kubrick here," and they they go, "Oh yes, you got a room for yeah." They they never bothered to charge him for anything. <laughs> he was invited to all these parties and opening nights. And it took him about six months to find him out, didn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant, <laughs> isn't it? And in the end, you sort of go, "Well, you gave it to me. You said I could have it." Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. There's nobody like that in this day and age, is there? 
Well, I'm fairly mysterious. You, you, yes, you know, yes. I don't give I much away. I would say that. I could probably pass myself off as you, actually. But I might try. <laughs> A younger me, I think. Um, <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, well, let's put The Shining in. Yes. Let's put The Shining in as your second item. The Shining definitely goes in. God, yeah. we only are number two. Gosh, I'm I know. sorry, I'm talking. No, talking. it's fine. Isn't it interesting how much I remembered about that film, having seen it once? Yes, yeah, I know. You should really see it again. I, I think I will, yeah. not want to, but, but it's not as... It's not as, it's just unsettling. I don't mm-hmm. feel it's scary. I mean, there's scary bits in it, of course. Yeah, the chasing around the maze. <laughs> yeah, the chasing around the maze. But the, one of the scariest bits, I think, in it is when um, Scatman Carruthers comes back to the hotel. He gets the sense that not all is right. He's trying to make the decision and he eventually does. And he goes back all the way because he's in Florida or whatever. He goes all the way back up. And he's got, he gets on the snow cat and he goes all the way up to the hotel. It takes him hours and hours and hours. And he gets in and he's just, he's going, hello? <laughs> hello? And he's walking through. And I always know it's coming, but I can never get exactly when it happens. But Jack comes at him and axes him and puts <laughs> an axe in his chest. Yeah. And it's that's one of the oh my god moments, mm. you know. I always forget where it's coming, even though I, even though I know the film so well, you know. Yeah. But it, yes, well, definitely, um, I would just suggest watching it again. I will do, but I put a spoiler alert <laughs> ahead of this bit, so if okay. anybody's not seen it but wants to watch it, don't listen because we've just told you all the best bits. <laughs> yeah, all the best bits. Oh um, my god, it's such a good film. Okay, let's move on to number three. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break here, but we'll be back with more from Mark in a moment. Thanks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Let's return to Mark Bonner in his hotel room with the Maltese sun blazing through his balcony window. Of course, remember, he can't actually leave the room, which is maybe why he agreed to spend some time talking to me. Still, his misfortune is our good fortune. Here are the other things he'd like to put in his time capsule. Okay, number three is my Spotify playlists. Now, this is a boringly kind of up-to-date in terms of technology because I did think, well, you know, would I take a band or would I take um, a gig? Mm -hmm. And I did say I ran through the various gigs because music is a massive part of my life. 
and I make playlists for jo- not all the time, but uh, quite a lot. I'll make a playlist for a job, for a character, for a job, you know, oh, right. um, just because it helps me kind of get in the zone, you know, but I, I make um, playlists because you can do a collaborative playlist on Spotify. Mm. So my best friend uh, who's called Keith, who I've known since I was 12, he lives in Edinburgh and we make these playlists together. We started about, uh, whenever I think whenever Spotify started it, um, which was about maybe five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. So we have, um, the format is we take turns to start it. There's 10 songs in each and whoever starts it does the title of the playlist. <laughs> and um, it's a really wonderful thing for all kinds of reasons. It enables communication between me and my best friend who don't see each other very often at all. Mm-hmm. It forces you to discover new music in an attempt to be kind of left field or, or you know, um, uh, I mean, sometimes we put golden oldies on, but very, very rarely. Mm. And uh, it also helps you, I mean, you're given music. He's got an encyclopedic knowledge of music and it's it's fantastic. When he puts a new one on, I'm like, what's that? Oh my God, I've never heard of them. That's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of thing, you know, mm. um, and it's just, a, it's just a lovely thing to be able to have and listen to, you know, 10 songs. It's finite. It's not, it doesn't go on forever. And it's like, a, you know, because we, we've always made each other mixes, mixtapes. I've, I've still got all his mixtapes that he made me. And then CDs, I've still got all of those. And now we've moved on to Spotify. Mm. So I actually, probably what would be the best thing to do would be to take all of those mixes, uh, including the Spotify ones. Very good, yes. Um, it's a wonderful thing to have. Do they act as reminders of the times when you first heard them? So when you listen to them, do you, does it take you back to when that was the latest compilation? The older ones, not the Spotify ones, because they're only five years old, but certainly has mixtapes. Mm. Yeah, there's there's certain songs. I mean, we used to we used to go to a, a club called Lacuna Head in Edinburgh when we were when we were young, um, <laughs> and it was um, it played kind of. I heard things there for the first time, like the Velvet Underground and Butthole Surfers, Nirvana, uh, Mud Honey, Jesus Lizard, all these kind of... Um, Sub Pop was a massive label at the time, uh, American label, and we we loved the Sub Pop stuff. Mm. Um, King Missile, loads and loads of brilliant music. And we, uh, we also went to see um, Nirvana in 91, because this, this was another thing I thought I might put in one of the time capsules was that gig. Um, because I was, I loved Nirvana and, um, Nirvana was one of my first kind of, I was always a heavy rock kind of guy. I loved ACDC was my very first gig, but when Nirvana happened about 10 years later, they really blew my socks off. Cause I, I think I was, uh, what was that? 19 or something maybe at the time. And we went to see them in Carlton studios, which was where Lacuna Head was. And it was just like, you know, electrifying and I was right down at the front staring right up at Kurt Cobain you know um, <laughs> my wife always talks about um we were once in France and for some reason I sat in the car and started listening to music and then my wife says that she came out and called the kids so come and look at your dad and I was sitting in the car at the moment where it goes and absolutely head-banging away in the front seat of the car with it on full volume. 
it's, it's the best. They, they, I mean, that it, it really captured the mood of the world. I think at that uh-huh. time, that that music really mm. kind of grabbed you by the balls. I mean, I don't listen to that album much these days, um, but when it comes on, I always will. If it, if it's in my sphere, you know, if it's on the radio or whatever, or it comes on, I'm you know, random Spotify thing. I'll always go, oh my god. But mm. I, I played it to death. I absolutely played it to death. And um, yeah, they were one of my big loves. But, um, but yeah, so, so I think that my Spotify playlists and probably and all the mixes that Keith made me, yeah. I think should go in. What a great way to keep in touch. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, we, we kind of, um, you know, we, we text each other a lot as well. But I think it's a kind of, you know, I'll... I always kind of joke that it's the way that men tell each other they love each other by giving them an album or it's always music, isn't it? It's always kind of, have you heard this? It's like teenagers thumping each other on the arm. It, yeah. it is, yeah, yeah, exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think I think it would be a, a good idea to put them in. Because also because of the, the breadth of the scope of music that's in there, you know, there's not much classical, it has to be said, and I do like classical music. And I've tried, I put a few classical on for Keith, but... Um, uh, I don't think he really is interested. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, it's also, it's very hard to make a classical mix because the pieces are, you know, minimum 25 minutes mm. per movement. Yeah, quite. You know, so it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> That's another day gone. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you may have opened up a new avenue for me. For many years, my present to people on their birthday was that I would put together either a tape originally and then CDs where I would burn the songs that were number one on each of their birthdays. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. And people to this day still say, I've, I still listen to that quite often. That's a really good idea. I've never yeah. thought about that. So you start with their first and go right through. So, you know, 50 songs for a 50-year-old. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Great. That's really good. Wow. But I can do that now on Spotify. Spotify, yeah. Spotify is really, I mean, they have to have Spotify on mm-hmm. their phone or whatever, you know. Um, but, I mean, even if you don't pay, you can still get the ad version, you know. Yeah. And they're the only ones that do the collaborative thing. Because I know that a lot, they're, they're also the worst payer, which is a bone of contention because my mm-hmm. brother's a musician. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's like, Spotify pay the least. And they're also a bit, you know, they had that whole Joe Rogan thing recently, yeah, didn't yeah. they? Mm. Um, so they're a bit dodge. Um, but I think all the all the other uh, streaming services don't do collaborative playlists. Right. And that's that's our big, you know, that's our, our big love, you know, mm. is, is that. So, in fact, we're in the middle of one now. I need to add a song. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, for I, now. I haven't, I haven't done Ooh. it. Well, for the last sort of week, we've had a, we've had a, a mix on the go. But we've got about... Um, I think we might have approaching 100 now, 100 mixes. But what's good about that is you can take as long as you like to put those together, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's always straight away, and I'm always the one that's like two weeks later, I'll put a song on. Yeah, yeah. His kids are a bit older than mine. That's my excuse. (laughs) He started having children in his 20s. (laughs) You will discover a whole new range of songs because your children as teenagers will make you listen to them, and it's a great Yeah, thing. that's great. I'm looking mm. forward to that, absolutely. At the moment, it's still... Uh, it's still um, Ariana Grande. It is Ariana Grande, Grande yes, yeah. Ariana Grande. Um, uh, but she, they're getting better, actually. They're, I don't mind Ariana Grande. She's got an amazing voice. Amazing, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm open to any kind of music. I love all, all kinds of music. That's what's so great about these mixes, you know, mm. is that they include everything, every genre. And we're, we, yeah, we're both pretty kind of open-minded. I mean, we, we will occasionally pick one that the other one doesn't like. You can tell because it kind of goes quiet mm. on the other end. <laughs> but it's a wonderful thing to have. And it's a wonderful kind of, 
uh, thing to have for us, I think, you know, for me and him. Yeah. No, I can absolutely understand why you treasure it. Yeah. So, yes, I will definitely put it in there. Cool. That's number three. That's number three. Yeah. So we've got two to go. We've got a good one and one you'd like to forget. Yes. Okay. Well, the, the last good one, again, I thought about this for a, um, a long time uh, because my dad's an artist and um, he's done so many artworks over the years. I've always been surrounded by kind of unusual I'm not that it seemed unusual to me, but I mean, from outside, it would seem unusual. But, but you know, there was always um, concrete sculptures of, of hippos or tulips or paintings, Dali-esque paintings of elephants and storks' legs. <laughs> you know, just incredible stuff to be surrounded by. So I wanted to choose something from my childhood mm. that he was making at the time when I was growing up. I was going to choose, he's got these concrete hippos, which is probably arguably what he's best known for, which are mostly in uh, Glenrothes in Fife. In fact, I, did, I made a documentary, about, uh, me and him made the documentary last year, which mm. is on iPlayer, called uh, Meet You at the Hippos, uh. which is about public art. He's a public artist, Dad. Mm. And uh, it's about public art in the 70s and 80s and how that was his kind of starting point um, for what he's philosophically moved on to since then. So do you get paid for public art? or Do you, you do that- get paid for it? Yeah, usually now they're um, run as either commissions or competitions. Mm-hmm. But at the time, which was what was so wonderful about it was that artists were um, employed by the Development Council, which we, which was the sort of council that was set up to run the new towns, the, all these new towns that were built after the war mm. to effectively rehouse people either in areas that were overcrowded, like Glasgow was immensely overcrowded, and also, you know, the, the, the tenements were in, in terrible condition. Mm. So they built these new towns um, for the sort of overspill and as part of the, they, they employed, you know, um, architects and planners, but they also employed an artist mm. to work alongside the architects and planners to integrate pieces of public art into the um, schemes where people lived. So in, in Glenrothes, you'll, you'll walk around a corner in your, in your um, council scheme and you'll see a kind of um, a standing stone circle made out of concrete um, by, by David Harding, who initially employed my uh, dad. He mm. was the town artist in Glenrothes, and he brought dad in from Dundee Art School when he finished there to become his assistant. And the first thing that dad made was these hippos, which are um, really, really beautiful things, really kind of serene, simple, but also their placement is, you know, context, there's a whole discussion in the programme about how context is, uh, you know, 50% of the work. So wherever, you, wherever it's placed, essentially, is, is the kind of, uh, is just as important as the work itself, you know. Mm. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up around all of that. And it was, I think it was a, a really a wonderful kind of, um, certainly a facilitator probably for what I came to do later in life, you know. Um, to, you know, he was kind of letting me know that, I suppose inadvertently that creativity was a good thing. Mm. Art was a, a positive thing, you know, uh, uh, and it always has been in, in our house. That's sort of a time when that sort of art was appreciated in the sense that there's been a period, I think, where whenever people have looked to cut costs, one of the first things they cut is is the arts. Yeah. Because they see it as being frivolous. Yeah. We can do without it. And yet clearly we can't. 
just driving through France the other day along a motorway. There was a long row of trees on the side. And then there were just little figures of people peering out through the bushes. And you just caught it and then it was gone. And it was on the side of a motorway. Now, I mean, it was really fabulous. And it really lifted your heart, you know, to see it. You went, wow, that's, God, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of art in life is absolutely crucial. Yes, I agree. I agree. Well, of course, I would agree. I'm the son of an artist. But <laughs> yeah. But I think that um, there's a massive discussion about art in public spaces. And, you know, what you were saying about it lifting your heart, especially with what we're going through. Yes. Um, but then again, you look at that situation, Mark. So just the other day, I saw people uh, on the news filling sandbags in Odessa in preparation for what they think is going to come. And those sandbags were being used to protect their public art. Really? So they were piling them up around things that they thought were precious. Oh, I didn't see that. That's amazing. I found it really moving. Good God. In the midst of this, what they really treasure is the beauty of their town. Yeah. Mm. That's incredible, isn't it? Mm. That says it all, I think. Yeah. So, yes, so I, I, grew, I grew up around that. And um, I encourage you to go and seek the show out on iPlayer, actually. It's, it's a really wonderful thing. Yeah, um, I'll put a link to it with this. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. I'm really proud of it. And Dad is, too. I think, we're, you know, it's, it's been a, a kind of... Um, it's difficult being an artist, you know. <laughs> it's difficult being an actor. And it's difficult being a musician, as my brother is. But I think it's really difficult being an artist. Yeah. Especially in this country, I would argue. Yes. Um, not this country, not Malta. Um, <laughs> uh, Britain. But the, the, thing, the thing that I want to put into the, into the time capsule is the, is the I, I kind of briefly scuttered over it, but he did a painting when I was about eight, nine, ten, maybe. Um, I mean, it took like six months to do it. I think this was after, so he got, when he was town artist, he got moved to Stone, the, the place we stayed, Stonehouse, um, which is just off the M8 um, in between Edinburgh and Glasgow, was going to become the next new town. Mm -hmm. And so we moved there with dad's job. And what happened was that, quite rightly, the people of Glasgow complained because all this money was going into these new towns that were being built and none of it was being used to regenerate the city. Mm. And people were moving out in their swades from yeah, Glasgow. Yeah. So quite rightly, the money, um, although it was bad planning and timing, um, the, the money got used to regenerate the West End of Glasgow. And the new town, the Stonehouse and East Kilbride new town development, stopped. They built two streets the street where we stayed, Murray Drive, was a kind of collection of circles of houses, like five little circles. And then there was another street built somewhere else in the town. And then that was it. Mm. And it was going to be massive. They were going to, they were going to build seven schools. Wow. Seven schools. Wow. So it was going to go all over the countryside. It was going to be huge. Yeah. But they, it stopped dead in its tracks. So dad essentially lost his job. And he painted this painting. It's basically, it's, it's very Dali-esque. It's two rows of elephants that are on stork's legs going off into the uh, distance. Mm. There's about five or six elephants on each side. And each one is very intricately kind of, there's like lots of little shapes and it's very psychedelic. 
um, lots of little shapes and kind of interesting pieces of writing and in tiny, tiny detail. Mm. And on one of the elephant's trunks, I loved it because it said, what are you doing, Master Bonner? Or something. <laughs> it's about as me. Anyway, yeah. um, so, yes, yeah, that was, a, I, I loved watching um, that take shape, that, that painting take shape. And I loved that I was included in it, you know. Mm. So I think I'd like to put that in the uh, capsules, Dad's painting. I think, my, I think my brother Vinny's got it, actually. <laughs> I think it's, ha- it's hanging on Vinny's wall. Wow, but it's got your name on it. But it's got my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll put that in as the fourth item. Thank you. So we've got one more thing to put in there that you'd like to forget about. Right. I'd like to take this away from the world. That's the reason I'm putting it in the time capsule. And it's not Donald Trump and it's not Boris Johnson, although I did, uh, as I'm sure everybody does, I'm sure many people have already put them in the bad capsule. A number of people, yeah. A number, yeah, good. Okay, so they're sorted. What Mm. I'd like to put in the bad capsule is plastic. Very good. Uh, Because I read something that chilled me to the marrow the other day, which was that they found plastic in uh, newborn babies' blood, microplastics, you know. <sighs> Which means it's everywhere. Well, they found it, already found it at the, on Everest. I mean, Everest is a fucking shithole anyway, isn't it? There's so many people going up and down it every day and dropping crap everywhere. But, but yeah, they found it at the peak of Everest. They found it um, in the middle of the Sahara. They found it in um, at the North Pole, South Pole. It's mm. everywhere. Plastic is everywhere. But in the blood of newborn babies. But in the blood of newborn babies, yeah. Um, and that really made me go, what the fuck are we doing? Mm-hmm. Who's not dealing with that problem, you know, sufficiently? And it's everybody that's not dealing with it. And it's because it's, the, you know, it's the, it's, the, um, it's the one last, I mean, everybody knows petrol and diesel's bad, right? So we're moving over to electric, mm. transport-wise. But it's the one last unspoken bastion of the oil companies because that's what it's made from. It's another byproduct of the, the petroleum industry, isn't it? Mm. In plastic. Yeah. Um, and it's fucking everywhere. It's in construction. It's in, you know, it's not just in your bags or in your packaging that you get from the from the supermarket. It's in everything. You yes. know, the, the little pieces of plastic that are in exfoliating makeup that you or exfoliating mm-hmm. face scrubs. That's little bits of plastic that just get washed down the drain, you know. Yeah. Washing powder. Washing powder, yeah. Dishwasher tablets. Yeah. Almost every single thing. You're right. And in fact, strangely, in quite a lot of food. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? It's a really odd thing that we're doing. Yes, it's a very simple thing, isn't it? It's like saying, well, why did it take everybody so long to go, do you know what? Smoking kills you, so we'd better stop. And I think that for, well, certainly in this country, people have started to do that, finally. Yeah. The world will look at it and go, what madness was that? And I think that that is exactly what will happen with plastic. We will at some point say, but... They discovered quite early how it was impossible to get rid of it and it was going everywhere. And once they discovered that, just stop making it. Yeah. It's like you said about the about the tobacco companies. The tobacco companies were the ones that were responsible, as we as we now know, for shoving all that stuff under the carpet, you know, and, and delaying the inevitable for as long as they possibly could. The plastic companies are also the ones to blame here because um you know, for example, the other day I learned that on every piece of plastic, you get uh, what looks like a recycling triangle, you know, with a number inside it. Yeah. That's not a recycling symbol. That was adopted by the plastic companies to look like the recycling symbol. But all that tells you is the type of plastic it is. And 
there are some there are seven types of plastic and only the first two are basically recyclable so numbers one and two basically uh, and, and not always completely recyclable um, either so no. and in fact the very term recyclable relies on you recycling it doesn't it uh, well yeah they should be compostable is what they should be exactly compostable and there are things that have been developed that could replace these things of course, they're, they're around now. They're yeah. a bit more expensive. Of course they are at the moment because they're... They're not mass-produced. Not mass-produced, I know. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I'm going to put all plastic into the time capsule and get rid of it for you. And let's hope that the rest of the world follows suit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Mark, it's been really lovely talking to you. It's been it's so good of you to give up the time. Oh, it's been smashing, mate. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. So have I, man. So have I. Great. Have a lovely time in Malta. And I hope to see you soon. Me too, man. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mark Bonner. There's a link in the description of this episode to the film that Mark made with his dad that he talked about. It's called Meet Me at the Hippos. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, then please subscribe to it if you haven't done already, and don't forget to rate the show before you go. You can even leave a review sometimes, or maybe you can move on to the other episodes we've made. There are lots to choose from, and we've made them with some lovely people, so do help yourselves. And of course, you can see what we're up to on My Time Capsule by following me and the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and you can download the theme tune on Spotify it was written by Pass the Peas Music our producer was John Fenton Stevens, and this was a cast-off production for Acast thanks for listening although it does make you envious though doesn't it hearing someone talking from a Mediterranean hotel <sighs> made me think about going on a trip myself I went to the travel agents and said I'd like to go somewhere hot, secluded and quiet please they put me in the photocopying cupboard Eventually, I told them I wanted to go to Paris on the train. The travel agent said, you're a star? I said, well, I've been on the telly, but I'm no Christopher Biggins. Yes, two jokes for the price of one. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you